Just a quick update before we jump into our next episode. Thanks to Audible, you can get a free audiobook just for being a listener of our show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. I only recommend books that I have personally read or listened to. At the end of this episode, I'll drop my suggestion, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer opens the door to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And regardless of your decision to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 120 of History of the Marine Corps, part 7 of our Guadalcanal and Tulagi series. American forces in Guadalcanal were reorganized into east and west sectors, with the 164th Infantry and the 7th Marines in the east navigating rugged terrain while focusing on encircling the enemy. Meanwhile, the west sector saw Bravo Company of the 8th Marines securing key artillery positions. Key to the operation was the 2nd Raider Battalion. Adopting aggressive patrolling tactics, their goal was to outmaneuver and attack the enemy from unexpected directions. But despite their efforts, communication challenges and coordination issues led to some Japanese forces escaping. We also look at a few naval and air engagements, which were pivotal in disrupting Japanese supply lines. The effectiveness of American aviation from Henderson Field played a crucial role in this aspect. It forced Japan to realize its inability to retake Guadalcanal and shift its focus to sustaining and evacuating its forces. On the ground, American troops faced obstacles in navigating the challenging terrain and executing complex orders. The use of war dogs and the involvement of the 2nd Raider Battalion in critical reconnaissance missions were notable aspects of this period. These events highlighted the need for clear command relationships in amphibious operations, emphasizing equal rank for amphibious and naval task force commanders. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. On November 4th, American forces reorganized into two sectors. General Rupertus took command of the East, while Brigadier General Seabury led the West. Under Rupertus's command, the 164th Infantry, with the exception of its 1st Battalion, left the perimeter on a mission to establish positions to the south of the area occupied by the enemy. Then, they would advance north towards the beach and team up with two battalions of the 7th Marines, who were already engaged in combat. The 164th Infantry skillfully navigated through the thick jungle, securing a position along the river's west bank. By the next day, they moved north, facing minor skirmishes but gradually making headway. Bravo Company of the 8th Marines were tasked with securing the sector command post, and protecting the 1st Battalion, 10th Marines. This artillery was crucial in supporting the operation of the 164th Infantry and the 7th Marines, 
This was fundamental to the overall objective of encircling and overpowering the enemy forces. The 2nd Raider Battalion, under Lieutenant Colonel Carlson, received airdropped orders on November 5th to move deep inland. They set out the following day and adopted aggressive patrolling tactics, setting the stage for future operations. The strategy for this movement involved using strong, aggressively led patrols moving towards their target. The command and main body followed the lead patrol and were positioned on the flanks. This approach achieved high mobility and minimized inactivity, which allowed for a quick response to a potentially large enemy force. This formation also gave them the ability to attack from unexpected directions. They settled in a small village eight miles from the coast and formed an operational hub. By the 7th, things started to ramp up. The battalions led by Hanneken and Pooler began moving forward and arriving at the west bank of the Metapona by 1600. The following day, the two battalions of the 7th Marines moved to encircle the enemy. They met different levels of resistance along the way. 2-7 didn't run into enemy forces, but 1-7, under Pooler, encountered intense opposition, suffering numerous casualties, including 4 killed, 2 missing, and 31 wounded. Among the wounded was Pooler, who had multiple fragmentation wounds, or as he described it, quote, a fanny full of shrapnel, unquote. In a crucial move, these battalions ended up on opposite sides of a thick jungle, with the enemy trapped in the middle. The plan was for the 164th to join them, effectively encircling a battalion-sized force, and cut off their escape routes and supply lines. Two days later, Hanneken began his attack on the west. He set up his companies in a line with golf by the beach and echo to the left, further inland. Fox was tasked with executing a flanking maneuver around the left inland flank. One platoon from Hotel was assigned to support each rifle company. The first contact was made at 1330. The main body of the Japanese force was entrenched in a stream in front of Echo Company. Facing stiff resistance in a frontal assault, Echo couldn't achieve its objective. They tried to advance to a stream's western bank wading through chest-deep water under heavy fire, but couldn't set up a firing line and were forced to pull back. They suffered 10 casualties as a result. Hanneken broke contact with the enemy, pulled his men back 200 yards to higher ground, and reinforced for the night. The battalion suffered 18 dead and 30 wounded. As U.S. forces settled in for the night, they repositioned for a better tactical posture with echo of the 164th Infantry reinforcing Hanneken's left flank. In preparation for a morning attack, Hanneken's battalion launched 60mm mortars throughout the night. At 0545, on the Marine Corps birthday, regimental orders came in to eliminate the enemy force. The plan for this attack relied on Fox and Golf Company from the 164th to be in position south of the enemy's pocket. They weren't. They were still attempting to close the inland gap. Neither Weber nor the 2nd Battalion 164th Commanding Officer had updates from these companies. 
Weber later discovered these companies had not established contact as ordered and had instead retreated to bivouac on his inland company's right flank. This action resulted in a need to recross the previously covered territory to reach a position from where they could attempt to close the gap. In the chaos, Echo Company of the 164th lost touch with both its battalion and Hanneken's unit, which caused further efforts to bridge the gap to fail. The enemy took advantage of this debacle. The entire Japanese force managed to slip away overnight. Through the gap, the 2nd Battalion of the 164th couldn't close. The 2nd Raider Battalion, under Lieutenant Colonel Carlson, received orders from Vandergriff to clean up the mess. They were to intercept and neutralize any enemy forces that slipped through the gap. At 10 in the morning, Echo Company of the 2nd Raiders made contact with 17 and were briefed on the breakout. 10 minutes later, Charlie and Echo of the Raiders reported engagement with a superior enemy force, three miles from headquarters. Echo and Delta companies were ordered to launch attacks east and north, converging on the conflict zone. As the Raiders engaged with the retreating force, the absence of resistance allowed the battalions, led by Echo Company of the 164th, to advance to the beach and reach their destination by noon. All three battalions, the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 7th Marines and the 2nd Battalion of the 164th, withdrew west of the Metapona River. In this operation, 1-7 suffered 14 killed, 2 missing, and 39 wounded, while 2-7 had 21 killed and 61 wounded. Two Marines were killed and four were injured from a falling tree. Though the Raiders encountered several enemy groups, none of these clashes proved decisive. After regrouping at headquarters and securing artillery support, they endured multiple Japanese assaults on November 12th and successfully repelled them with assistance from the 1st Battalion 10th Marines artillery. Carlson closely inspected the area, and he confirmed with previous intelligence that they were indeed up against a battalion-sized force. Quote, we found notices written on paper and tacked to trees, indicating where various companies were to go. Our outguards began shooting enemy messengers who attempted to enter, apparently thinking that the positions were occupied by their own people. During the day and night of November 12th, we killed 45 messengers who tried to enter. One was an officer. Unquote. Over the following days, Skirmishes continued, but by the 17th, it was clear that the primary enemy force had retreated to the hills. Carlson was called back to the perimeter and spoke to Vandergriff about the battalion's future operations. This period marked a pivotal phase in the Raiders' campaign. The directives from the conference specified several key objectives. The first was to locate and explore the suspected trail behind Mount Austin to Cocombona. The second was to verify whether enemy forces were assembled south of the airstrip. Third was to locate and neutralize enemy artillery units that were bombarding the defensive perimeter. And the fourth was to find and confirm a path to Mount Austin's summit from the southern side. This objective came from reports from the 1st Marines patrols, 
which suggested the existence of such a path. To execute their mission, the 2nd Raider Battalion was teamed up with locals who helped the battalion by carrying supplies, equipment, or other loads. They were also familiar with the terrain and environment, providing valuable support in logistics and transportation during the mission. A key figure in this phase was Sergeant Major Vuza, who gained respect from the Marines for his courageous service. He played a pivotal role in leading the battalion during the initial stages of its operation. On the 24th, the battalion began its second operational phase, with reconnaissance patrols. Alpha Company joined the team, and the battalion moved its base to the upper Tenru Valley. They established advanced posts, laying the groundwork for extensive area searches. This period expanded the battalion's operational capacity and geographic coverage. Their efforts not only included engaging the enemy, but also understanding and navigating the complex terrain they operated in. By the 28th, the battalion had successfully took out an enemy artillery position. Although the actual gun was not found at this time, the raiders stumbled upon a cache of 75mm shells. The gun was found two days later, when they discovered an abandoned camp, which included the 75mm mountain gun and a 37mm anti-tank gun. Upon discovery of these two guns, Fox Company was quickly sent on patrols to search the nearby area. One of the patrol squads, which contained about 13 Marines, ran into a force of 100 Japanese troops. Even though they were incredibly outnumbered, they immediately opened up with automatic weapons and almost wiped out the Japanese force. A count later revealed 75 dead Japanese bodies. The squad had zero casualties. In the north, Marines uncovered a major trail linking the upper Teneru to the Lunga, then to the eastern slopes of Mount Austin. Carlson liked this spot and relocated headquarters to this area. December 1st saw the battalion receive a crucial airdrop of supplies, and they successfully retrieved most of the dropped items. About a quarter of it was lost. Vandergriff also sent orders to Carlson that day and asked him to return to the perimeter. Carlson still had one objective he hadn't fulfilled. To find out if the Southern Trail on Mount Austin existed. He requested to extend his operation for a few more days, and Vandergrift approved. The following day, patrols continued their reconnaissance, identifying further enemy artillery positions. After his extension was up, Carlson received orders to head back to the perimeter he split his battalion into two and sent one towards the perimeter at the Teneru. Under his command, the second headed for the Matanical, investigating Mount Austin as they passed. Marines discovered and investigated abandoned enemy positions on the mountain. Carlson described them as the hub of a spider web of ridges. They ran into a strong enemy patrol and fought for two hours. The raiders were able to encircle the enemy and take out the threat. 25 Japanese soldiers died during this fight. Four Marines were wounded, one of whom died the following day. The battalion successfully completed their mission and returned to the Marine lines. They had eliminated 488 enemy combatants, 
at the cost of 16 dead and 18 injured among their ranks, including one native scout. Now, when I think of the Battle of Guadalcanal, I tend to picture the island itself and the Marines fighting on that island. But it's fair to say that the most crucial part of the battle was fought in the sea. There was a significant loss of naval vessels for both sides during the Guadalcanal campaign. The naval battles convinced Japan that Guadalcanal was a lost cause for two reasons. The first was that Japan suffered considerably, losing 11 transport and cargo ships, which was a significant blow, even with their naval superiority. The second was the human cost. The increasing efficiency of American aviation from Henderson Field and the assertive strategies of the Navy surface task groups forced Japan to revise their approach to delivering food, supplies, and reinforcements to their men. By the end of October, Allied resistance on Guadalcanal caused Japan to stop their ineffective nightly destroyer runs, which failed to transport the heavier equipment needed on the island. Japan came to the realization that Marines would hold Henderson Field at all costs. This insight led them to deploy a large convoy of transport ships, heavily guarded by a strong surface force. Included in the transports was the Hiroshima Division. The Japanese convoy, intending to deliver troops and supplies, was annihilated due to the Allied naval and air force attacks. This defeat was a critical factor in the Japanese decision to withdraw from Guadalcanal. Japan's leadership recognized the impossibility of overcoming the sustained and effective Allied resistance. Minor resistance persisted into January, but the focus shifted towards sustaining and eventually evacuating Japanese forces from the island. The United States endured losses as well, including the sinking of carriers, cruisers, destroyers, and hundreds of planes. On November 12th, Allied search planes spotted Japanese ships, including combat vessels and transports approaching Guadalcanal. Two days later, aircraft from the USS Enterprise launched an initial but limited attack. A large assault unfolded, involving 40 Marine Corps planes from Henderson Field, along with additional aircraft from the Enterprise and other bases. This attack resulted in considerable damage to Japan's transports, with their escort vessels retreating early and leaving them vulnerable. The U.S. fleet, including the cruiser San Francisco, fought a chaotic battle with Japanese battleships and destroyers. American ships were hit by torpedoes and suffered significant damage and losses. The chaos also included accidental friendly fire within the American force. The cruisers Atlanta and Juno were sunk, as were four destroyers. The Helena was damaged. The number of casualties during this battle was substantial and included the loss of Admirals Callaghan and Scott. But it was decisive, and the United States caused enough damage to force the enemy to retreat the following day. Four Japanese transports were able to survive, and they were spotted near Guadalcanal's coast in the morning. Three of these vessels were beached, and one was on fire. The 3rd Defense Battalion's artillery and air attacks targeted the vessels, leading to their complete destruction. This action also caused extensive fires along the shore, damaging any supplies that landed. 
only a small disorganized group of troops from these ships managed to reach the shore, and Marines were sent to take them out. A portion of U.S. troops advancing west on Guadalcanal were repositioned to the perimeter, and the 2nd Marines, except for the 3rd Battalion, secured a small beachhead near Point Cruz. Marine and Army artillery batteries were deployed to reinforce this position. These units delivered substantial counter-battery fire, although the defensible area remained vulnerable to ground attacks and enemy artillery. A Japanese force was spotted in the northwest, and U.S. troops had to stop patrols again and withdraw to defensive perimeters on the river's east bank. In this area, 1-8 was on the beach, 2-8 was in the middle, and 3-8 was positioned inland. Two battalions of the 182nd Infantry and two of the 164th prepared for an upcoming attack on the 21st. The security of the crossing points along the river's east bank was managed by the 8th Marines, who were positioned along the adjacent ridge. When the attack started, it was led by artillery and extensive strafing, but little progress was made. Brigadier General Seabree issued an extremely specific order to compensate. Quote, the Army will dig in in its present position. H hour is 0630 tomorrow morning. The attacking forces will seize the high ground about 1,200 yards to the west and organize it for defense. Artillery will fire preparation on enemy positions from 615 to 630. At 1500, 1st Battalion 182nd and 164th will withdraw to a position 300 yards in rear of their night position to get clear of artillery concentration. At 0630, they will advance to their former position, where they will be passed through by the 1st and 2nd Battalion's 8th Marines. The 2nd Battalion 182nd Infantry will remain in its present position, protect the left flank, and maintain contact with the 8th Marines' left flank. When the 164th Infantry is passed through by the 8th Marines, it will become Division Reserve. Mortars and artillery will cease fire promptly at 6.30. Thereafter, they will fire only at suitable targets on call from unit commanders. Unquote. The regimental commander for the 8th Marines shared his views on the detailed order and confirmed how it was wrong from almost the beginning. Quote, the artillery fired as scheduled, but it was about an hour and a half before the 1st and 2nd battalions of the 8th Marines had completed passing through the Army units. This resulted from the movement being cross-corridor, and a ravine had to be traversed with almost vertical sides. Therefore, the shock effects of the heavy artillery fire on the enemy were completely gone by the time the troops had come in contact with the enemy positions." Unquote. This order also included one of the Army's habits of withdrawing troops before artillery support. Major General Valle commented on this tactic in 1947. Quote, this Army custom of withdrawing before our artillery support merely created a vacuum into which the Japanese filtered. The next advance had to clear them out all over again. Unquote. The American troops advanced to a bare ridge, facing an enemy entrenched in a well-protected position. 
1-8 and 2-8 were positioned between two battalions of the 182nd Infantry. Their lines, not as far forward as before, extended from Point Cruz inland through rugged terrain. This setup limited the Marines' movements. Lieutenant Floon documented the battle in detail. Quote, The actions of the 2nd Battalion 8th Marines illustrate the futility of the attack as ordered. On 22nd November, 2-8 Les Echo Company and Hotel Company commenced an ordered movement across the Matanacau with information that they would probably pass through the army. At 1400, an order for the attack on November 23rd was received, stating that 2-8 would pass through 3rd Battalion of the 164th. Upon receipt of the order, Lieutenant Colonel Cook, CO of 2-8, went forward to make a personal reconnaissance and indicated an assembly position, to which Major Adams, executive officer, was to lead the battalion. During the movement to the assembly position, Adams received the complete attack orders with the details as shown in General Seabree's order. Cook rejoined the battalion after dark and issued his attack order to company commanders. The battalion, in order to get into position to attack, would have to cross a ravine about 100 feet deep and so steep that ropes were needed in going up and down the sides. The crossing would have to be single file. The bivouac area of 2-8 was less than 300 yards from the front lines. On the morning of 23 November, 2-8 crossed the ravine prior to the artillery bombardment and upon seeing the time-space factor involved, ordered the movement of the remainder of the battalion to commence immediately. When the barrage lifted, 3rd Battalion of the 164th fought its way back to its original positions. About an hour and a half later, Fox and Golf of 2-8 were in position to commence the attack. No contact had been established with 1-8 on the right, nor had Echo Company moved from its former position in the line. It was difficult to press the attack using the rifle company's 60mm mortars and the 81mm mortars to furnish supporting fire. The Japanese were well entrenched and defilade, with automatic weapons so sighted that the crest of the ridge on which they had their positions was under continuous fire, and with a few snipers in the trees overlooking the ridge. No reasonably accurate intelligence of the enemy was available prior to the attack. 3164 knew only that there were lots of Japanese there. The attack finally got underway about 900, after some mortar preparation. The move was met by an intense volume of fire from the Japanese. Golf Company could not establish fire superiority and was stopped with no gain. Fox Company made a small, local penetration of the Japanese position, but could not exploit it. The company commander of Echo was ordered to move his company into position behind Fox to attack through them and exploit that penetration. It must be realized that the entire battalion was strung out along a ridge backed by a steep ravine, about 100 feet deep. No large assembly area was available on the ridge back of the front lines. As Echo Company started to move, the head of Echo Company received mortar fire which caused a great deal of disorganization and several casualties, 
The first shell landed about 10 feet from the spot where Lieutenant Colonel Hall, CO of 3164, Lieutenant Colonel Cook, CO of 28, Major Adams, XO for 28, and Captain John Peacock, Commanding Officer for 3rd Battalion, 28, were gathered around a map. Both Lieutenant Colonel Hall and Captain Peacock were wounded and had to be evacuated. About the time that Echo Company started to move up again, word was received by runner that 1-8 on the right had made no advance. Shortly afterward, orders were received from regimental headquarters to cease the attack and dig in in the present position. Unquote. The following week, American forces maintained these positions, focusing primarily on strong and proactive patrolling for defense. The units of the 8th Marines in this sector were relieved, one battalion at a time. The 1st Battalion was relieved on the 26th, the 2nd, three days later, and the 3rd on December 1st. Following these rotations, the regiment established defensive positions around the airfield. In the last week of November, a patrol led by Army 1st Lieutenant Frederick T. Flo included 13 men of the 164th Infantry, two Marine radio men, two Marine Navajo talkers, and one native police boy. They conducted reconnaissance in the area around Beaufort and Tyro Bays. They found no significant Japanese presence, only small scattered groups. The patrol's findings indicated that the remaining Japanese forces on Guadalcanal were primarily located east of Cape Esperance on the north coast. In 1942, the Marine Corps began experimenting with war dogs, a concept not new in warfare, but new for the Corps. The program sourced dogs from various donors, focusing on breeds like German Shepherds and Doberman Pinschers, which were ideal for scout and messenger roles. Training at Camp Lejeune lasted about 14 weeks, emphasizing combat readiness and message delivery. In late November, the war dogs were introduced. Contributing to the operations in the Pacific, they were very valuable in detecting ambushes and carrying messages, saving many lives. A memo from Colonel Buckley to all infantry units, dated November 23, 1942, advised that dogs and handlers were being sent to them and guidelines were being issued for their employment. The program was so new that Lieutenant Colonel Williams, the CO for 3-7, had to provide his own handler. He was to select, quote, a man who knew something about dogs, unquote. Williams later recounted, quote, the first three nights, he barked at everything that moved. After that, he turned into the soundest sleeper in the vicinity of the command post, unquote. The last two weeks of November were relatively calm on the island. Japanese surface forces, which had been active in October and early November, retreated north. During this period, the main ground activity involved the 2nd Raider Battalion, which advanced along the Teneru River Valley. They engaged in operations against the remnants of Japanese forces that had previously encountered resistance from Allied forces near Coley Point. In January 1946, an interview asked Chesley Pooler when he realized the Marines were winning. Quote, he said 
that when the news of the successful attacks by the mixed Cactus Air Force began to come in, in the form of fragmentary radio intercepts, as he was laying wounded in the hospital near Lunga Point, and everyone realized that the great enemy convoy was being cut to pieces, he knew that he and the rest of the American force were over the hump. Unquote. On November 29th, Fleet Admiral Ernest King, Chief of Naval Operations during World War II, informed Nimitz, Halsey, and MacArthur that the 1st Marine Division, weakened by malaria and dietary restrictions, would be relieved by Army troops. The 25th Army Division, initially bound for Australia, was redirected to Guadalcanal. The 1st Marine Division, upon relief, would move to Australia under MacArthur's command. On November 7th, General Geiger returned to the 1st Marine Air Wing's rear area headquarters, handing over command to Brigadier General Lewis E. Woods. In late October and early November, the issue of command hierarchy in amphibious operations was addressed when General Holcomb paid a visit. Vandergrift briefed Holcomb on the problem of Turner having command of ground forces. A dispatch was later sent to King, suggesting that amphibious troop commanders should hold equal rank with naval task force commanders. Holcomb, after careful consideration, agreed with this proposal. The dispatch was also shown to Nimitz, who sought Holcomb's opinion, and again, Holcomb concurred with it. This change in command relationship was significant for future amphibious operations. However, it presented another problem to the Marines. When exactly was the Army supposed to relieve amphibious forces after a landing operation? The relief of the 1st Division was preceded by a series of letters exchanged between the Commanding General of the 1st Marine Amphibious Corps and Admiral Halsey, the commander of the South Pacific area. On November 10th, the Commanding General submitted two alternative plans for the Division's relief and started this communication. Quote, if progressive landing operations are contemplated, it is of utmost importance that the question of Army occupation after a beachhead had been established by Marine forces be settled definitely. Otherwise, our future operations with Marine forces will be limited to what we can gain and hold with Marine forces. Halsey responded, quote, It is not practicable at this time to definitely settle the question of promptly relieving amphibious forces after a landing operation. It is a principle that should be followed, but the question is one hinging on the availability of troops and the practicability of the relief under varying situations, which cannot be foreseen. Unquote. In the period leading up to the withdrawal of the 1st Marine Division from the island, the last naval engagement of the campaign occurred off Tassafaranga, west of the perimeter. Japan was preparing to make one more attempt to supply their troops on the western part of the island. To ensure that Japan's resupply attempt was prevented, a small U.S. task force, led by Rear Admiral Wright, and consisting of five cruisers and six destroyers, departed on November 29th. On that same night, eight Japanese destroyers, under Rear Admiral Tanaka, set sail with a similar objective. Due to adverse weather conditions, American planes sent to Tulagi for search and illumination couldn't carry out their mission. 
Radar contact was first established by the USS Minneapolis on November 30th at 2300. 16 minutes later, the USS Fletcher launched torpedoes at a target approximately 7,000 yards away. The Japanese, although initially surprised, executed a well-coordinated maneuver with precision. All of their destroyers launched torpedoes, turned to port, and quickly retreated. Despite orders to refrain from firing, one Japanese destroyer fired and was subsequently sunk by the American cruisers. This outcome was costly for the United States. Despite achieving surprise at close range, they only managed to sink one Japanese destroyer and inflict minimal damage on another. In contrast, one American cruiser, the USS Northampton, was sunk, and three others, the Minneapolis, New Orleans, and Pensacola, sustained heavy damage. To recap the episode, the American section was divided into east and west sectors. Rupertus managed operations in the east with the 164th Infantry and battalions of the 7th Marines. These units faced unpredictable resistance while advancing. Notably, Pooler's battalion encountered severe opposition. American forces engaged in multiple assaults against Japanese positions. One instance involved Echo Company, which met significant resistance and had to retreat. Communication issues and coordination challenges led to the enemy's escape in some cases. The 2nd Raider Battalion, under Carlson, played a crucial role with aggressive patrolling. Meanwhile, substantial naval and air engagements occurred resulting in significant losses for both sides. The Japanese suffered heavily, losing 11 transport ships, while the Americans lost several cruisers and destroyers. The effective use of American aviation at Henderson Field was pivotal in disrupting Japanese supply efforts. Following these heavy losses, Japan acknowledged its inability to retake Guadalcanal, shifting focus to supplying and evacuating its troops. On the ground, American troops encountered difficulties in advancing due to challenging terrain and complex orders. Other notable aspects of this period included the use of war dogs, enemy submarine activities, and the impending relief of the 1st Marine Division. The events in Guadalcanal highlighted the need for clear command relationships in amphibious operations, emphasizing the principle of equal rank for commanders of amphibious and naval task forces. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll close out on Guadalcanal and follow the Marines as they move up the Solomon Island chain. This week's audiobook is The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray. This book looks at current societal divisions caused by identity politics and social justice movements. Murray reviews the underlying ideologies related to gender, race, and identity, arguing that these movements have created an environment where accusations of prejudice are common and certain groups are believed to have suffered historical oppression. Murray's opinion is that these beliefs have taken on near-religious dedication, leading to public shaming, and ridicule. According to him, this environment stifles free speech and open debate, creating a culture of fear among those who might hold different opinions. 
Murray's critique extends to the idea that modern society places too much emphasis on victimhood as a form of social currency. He suggests this is counterproductive to a cohesive society and meaningful progress. I think it goes without saying that the reception of Murray's book has been polarized, with some praising it for daring to challenge prevailing societal norms and other criticizing it as an oversimplification of complex social issues and dismissing legitimate grievances. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.